Last week at our main campus, I had the week off from preaching. Well, I did not have the week off. I had the week off from preaching. I, I actually was working, um, working very hard um, because uh, it, was the, it, was the, uh, it was the one Sunday of the year where the senior pastor worked nursery in both services. So I was working much harder in both services than I ever work uh, preaching. And um, it was, it was an interesting experience. I, 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 don't, I, don't know, um, I don't know how we're doing nursery volunteering here. I hope I'm not going to discourage uh, volunteer. Volunteer for the nursery, okay? It's, it's very important, all right? Even if it's, well, so, oh, it is. It's required? Oh, okay. <laughs> then I get to speak honestly. Okay. So they are cute. They are adorable. They are fun, but... Um, the doctrine of original sin is alive and well in that room back there. Um, it is popular in our culture to say that children are born innocent without hatred in their hearts and uh, violence on their hands. And they, we are told they kind of learn um, they kind of learn how to hate each other and be mean to each other from this cruel, mean world. Um, Again, I would like anybody who scribes that philosophy to volunteer in a church nursery. Um, the amount of selfishness, dishonesty. I mean, the, the way these little kids can just lie. Uh, anger, covetousness. That's a big one in the nursery. The coveting that is going on in that room over plastic toys. Violence. These are not things human beings must learn. They come very natural. Do you know why we are hosting a conference on neighbor love? Because we never outgrow the nursery. Nobody here needs to learn how to hate their neighbor. Everyone here needs to learn how to love your neighbor. And today we begin this whole conference, this whole dialogue that we're going to have this week with the foundational command itself that will lay the groundwork for our conference on neighbor love. It's Christ's original command to love your neighbor. And I'm going to break it down in two ways. The foundation of love and the application of love. The foundation of love is that first part where he talks about love the Lord your God. And the, the application of love is that second part where he talks about love your neighbor. Let's start with the foundation of love. Verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard him and heard them, that is the Pharisees, disputing with one another. And seeing that he, that is Jesus, answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? So what's going on here is the scribes are listening to Jesus debate the Pharisees and they're essentially saying, hmm, this guy seems to know what he's talking about. I want in on this. And so they ask a question that they think is going to trip him up which is what they were always trying to do with Jesus. And what Jesus does is he gives the scribes exactly what they want to hear. This is the answer that the scribes who were the guardians of the law in that day, they were the interpreters of the law of that day, that, that being the Torah, what we, what we would refer to as the Old Testament. He gives them what they want. Verse 29, Jesus answered, The most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. What he chooses there is called the Shema. 
This is the greatest commandment of Israel, of the Old Testament. The Shema is the confession of faith. You had the Apostles' Creed that we say again and again and again in the Christian tradition. The Shema was kind of like that for Israel. It's in Deuteronomy 6, um, one of the most famous passages in Scripture. And it served as Israel's uh, central creed. They, Jews would pray it in the morning, pray it in the evening. If you, talk to, uh, if you talk to a Jew who's still practicing their faith today, they are still probably praying this in the morning, in the evening. It was a creed that told Israel two things. What is true and what to do. What is true? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, that may not seem like much of a truth statement to you, but to the ancient world, that was a revolutionary concept. All ancient religions were polytheistic, meaning they were many gods with different attributes and different roles, and many were prayed to, and, and many were sacrificed to. But what made Israel so controversial and compelling is their crazy, unique claim of monotheism, mainly... There is only one true God, and that is the God of Israel. That was an incredibly audacious claim to the ancient world. What we see in the Old Testament is a God who speaks of himself not as a God of many gods or even the greatest God of all the other gods, but as the only God. And so this was Israel's central and unique claim. The Lord, our God, our God is one. There's one God. And it's ours. Now, if it is true that Yahweh of Israel is the one true God, then by implication it means that every single person must necessarily treat God as such. And that's where the Shema goes. What is true? The Lord is one. So what should we do? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now note that the command uses the language of love. It does not say you shall obey the Lord your God. It does not say you shall submit to the Lord your God. It does not say you shall confess Him to be your God. It says you shall love. The greatest commandment is commanding your love. Now you might find that peculiar as a religious command. But it is born out of the way the Bible views us as image bearers. We are creatures who love. Perhaps a contemporary word, the word love in our, in our culture is overused and misused, and so it's cheapened. Perhaps a contemporary word that gets to the meaning more here would be worship. Animals don't worship, people worship. And this worship impulse cannot be turned off. You are worshiping something. Or to use the language of the text, you are in love. The fall, what we call the fall of humanity, was not the end of love. It was the disordering of love. What we should love ultimately, the Lord our God, we no longer do. And what we shouldn't love ultimately, the creation of our God, we do love ultimately. And so the greatest command is really simple. God wants your love back. He bids humanity to love the one true God ultimately 
and completely, and I do mean completely, Look at the expanse of this language. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Every part of you is in undivided allegiance to God. Now, you might want to ask, does that mean I can't love my spouse? If I'm going to be all of me in love with God, does that mean no love for spouse, no love for children, family, friends, work? hobbies. No, this means that by loving God ultimately, you will love all things rightly. And that is why this is the greatest commandment. Because if this commandment is obeyed, they're all obeyed. If God is love ultimately, then love is properly ordered. And then virtue just falls into place. And so the greatest command is very simple. Love God with every part of your being. But Jesus doesn't stop there. And this is where it gets controversial. Like I said, what he has said thus far is exactly what they expected and exactly what they wanted. But he does something fascinating. He takes the standard answer of the day, the Shema, morning and evening, the central creed, what they expected him to do. He takes that and then seamlessly takes it a step further in a way they never had heard. He views the Shema as the foundation of love that then gives way to an application of love. Let's look at that. So we've seen love's foundation, this great creed of Israel, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, strength. Let's look at the application seamlessly. He goes into verse 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now this of course, is what is commonly referred to as the golden rule, right? It appears almost inconspicuously in Leviticus 19. That's why I had you read it as your um, Old Testament reading because a lot of people don't realize that this actually is in the Scriptures. It certainly does not hold the prominence of the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. But there's a reason why Jesus chooses that seemingly obscure passage from Leviticus 9 and singles it out. It's because every religion, every moral code, every philosophy, every ethic includes the golden rule in some form. In fact, even in Christ's day, 20 years before Jesus, a, a famous Jewish leader, um, rabbi, summarized the entire Torah by saying this, what you would not want done to you, do not do to your neighbor. And that became very famous in Jesus' day. In Rome at the time of Jesus, even the secular, um, irreligious uh, world spoke of the golden rule in some forms. For ages, this principle has been the standard of ethics. Even to this day, we find it in, in, in uh, 1993, the Parliament of World Religions declared the golden rule as the global ethic that transcends every religion, meaning essentially this. If you study every single religion and philosophy, the one thing that you can find commonality in, the one thing they all agree upon is this, the golden rule. You'll find this in every religion in some capacity. And so what this means is that if you were to ask any culture, any religion, out of any age, the question posed to Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? The most common answer you would probably see would be some form of the golden rule. So this is what Jesus has brilliantly done. 
He has taken Israel's central religious commandment. He has taken the world's most common social ethic and he has combined them together as one. There, should be not, there, there would be nothing particularly extraordinary about him choosing the Shema as the greatest commandment. That's exactly what the Jews and scribes would expect him and they would agree with him. Nor would there be th anything particularly extraordinary about him choosing the golden rule as the greatest commandment. Most cultures would expect that. Everyone would agree. But Jesus is the first and only to bind them together inseparably and to say you can't have one without the other. He says there is no other commandment singular greater than these. Plural. He is asked for one and his answer is two. Implication, he views them together as one. Together, the greatest religion command and the greatest social command form the greatest commandment. And that is what sets Christ's ethic apart. In binding them together as one, each becomes what the other desperately needs. And I want to explain that to you. I want you to understand this, okay? Here's what I mean by that. The command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is begging for access. What does that mean? What does that look like? Similarly, the command to love my neighbor as myself is begging for a foundation. Why would I do this? Why should I choose to love my neighbor? But when they come together, they satisfy each other. So, Jesus tells us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yes, but what does that even mean? Is it words that we say? Is it a feeling we have? I just, I feel like I love you, God. What does that mean to love the Lord our God like this? Practically speaking, how do we do this? Jesus now gives us an answer. Oh, that's easy. Love your neighbor. And so in this way, love for my neighbor becomes the expression of my love for God. But the other thing is true too. Now... Love for neighbor has a foundation that it so desperately needs. This lofty, love your neighbor as yourself ethic finally has a reason to stand on. Every worldview, every culture, every, every religion, and all cultures irreligious will tell you love your neighbor as yourself. But you know what you should ask? Why? Why should I do that? Why should I choose to love neighbor? Well, now we have an answer. But without this, you don't. The secular ethic would say, well, obey your, uh, uh, love your neighbor as yourself because that's good for humanity. It's, it, it, it's kind of the collective good. But why should I care about humanity more than myself? In fact, the very philosophy that undergirds this secular society says, I should be concerned about my survival over my neighbor. And so a secular worldview has no reason to tell you why you should love your neighbor. In fact, loving my neighbor is counterproductive to survival in this very cruel and meaningless world. So the secular world has no reason to tell you why you should love your neighbor. Or, but neither does the religious world. On the other hand, the religious would say, well, obey this ethic so that you will be rewarded. That's essentially what every religion says. Be nice so that you'll be rewarded. Love your neighbor as yourself will get me to heaven or some other religious reward, perhaps an inner peace 
perhaps greater karma or something like that. But that, you know what that is? That's just a backhanded way of loving myself. I'm not loving my neighbor. I'm using my neighbor. I'm exploiting my neighbor. I'm loving my neighbor as a religious means to love myself. And so a religious worldview turns neighbor love into an exploitive exercise of self-love, of loving myself. You see the golden rule that we all love and all take for granted is begging for a foundation, is begging for someone to answer the question, why? Why should I love neighbor? Well, that's what Jesus has done. Why love your neighbor as yourself? Because you love God with your whole self, and that is what the God you love has called you to do. Neighbor love is your love offering to the God that you love. I love you, God. He says, thank you. Love your neighbor as an expression of that love. So in uniting these two together, what Jesus has effectively done is give application to love for God and foundation to love for neighbor. Our vertical love is expressed horizontally. Our horizontal love is motivated now vertically. So let's consider how, let's flesh this out, okay? Um, th- I, I totally understand. That's, that's the, the exegesis, what we call it. That's the theory and stuff. I understand this is begging to move from theory to real life practicality. Let's flesh this out. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to go ahead and take it all the way to what is probably the most pressing and difficult issue Christians are facing when it comes to this idea of neighbor love in our day. I thought the best way to do this was, would be to just start off our conference by going to the most controversial one. <laughs> so then we could talk about everything else. So at the conference this week, we're going to talk about a lot of important issues. Uh, we're going to talk about one seminar is going to be on how to love our neighbor who, are, who is different than us ethnically. It's a really important question. How to love our neighbor who's different than us socioeconomically. Very important. How to love our neighbor who's different than us politically. Very important. That's the seminar that, that, that I'll be working on. How to, we're even doing a seminar on how to love your neighbor who's different than you when, when they're a family member. <laughs> how do you love the family member? Yeah. But one of those that is not included is love for those different than us sexually and with a different sexual ethic. It's not that we are trying to avoid that topic at all but because we think the issue is so timely, so sensitive, so important that sexuality probably warrants its own discussion, perhaps even its own conference. But because it is so important, let me use it as a way to flesh out this sermon practically and set the stage for our conference. So let's just go there. If you're looking at percentage speaking, uh, when you just look at population percentages, the city of Lexington is home to one of the largest gay communities in our country. Uh, we are one of only a handful of major cities that has elected an openly gay mayor, uh, a mayor that I know and uh, consider a friend. Um, our gay pride festivals are recognized as some of those popular and enthusiastic in the country. When I was driving here, I drove across a crosswalk uh, painted in rainbow colors. Whether you want to admit it or not, whether you want to ignore it or not, whether you don't want to go there or not, I don't know. It doesn't matter. If we're going to take serious the call to love our neighbors, then yes, we are going to have to consider what it means to love the LGBTQ community of Lexington. You don't have a choice. 
we cannot exist for the glory of Christ and the good of the bluegrass sans the LGBTQ population of the bluegrass. You're not allowed to do that. Jesus has given you no choice. If you were to ask your Lord Jesus, if you were to ask the Lord, what does it mean to love him with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength? You know what he'd say. He's already said it. He would say, oh, you need to love your neighbor. If you then said, okay, but who's my neighbor? Searching for a loophole, <laughs> which is what they did in, another, in Luke's account. Well, who's my neighbor then? He's going to tell you a parable. And that parable is going to confront you with the last person you want to love. The one you want to ignore at best and hate at worst, your Samaritan. That's what he did. So the Jews said, well, I know I need to love my neighbor, but my neighbor is my Jewish brothers and sisters. And he said, no, actually it's not. And he told him the parable of the Good Samaritan, the last person they wanted to love. And I think, now this, this uh, it might be different here um, at this campus, but I think by and large, when you think about conservative Christianity, I think we would have to admit what everyone sees is glaringly obvious. <laughs> that contextually speaking for us, um, in, in the conservative evangelical world, this certainly would be the LGBTQ community. Um, and so yes, follower of Jesus, your Lord has left you no choice. You must love them, your neighbors. You must befriend them. You must listen to them. And when you listen, you have to apologize where you need to apologize. And um, I've, I've done that. If, if you're a person who, um, if you're a person who uh, struggles with same-sex attraction or um, or your, whatever is going on sexually in your, in your heart and, and you've had to navigate the, the, the difficult world of that struggle within conservative evangelicalism, I know how tough that is. And, um, and so um, we, we need to start listening. Um, we need to serve. We need to invite them into the hospitality of our home. You must love your gay neighbors. Now, if you are more progressive or um, probably millennial, certainly Gen Z, you are probably saying amen inside right now and pleasantly surprised to hear that from a PCA pulpit. But wait, there's more. <laughs> Let us not forget the foundation of love for neighbor. We are not just nice adherers to the golden rule. We are worshipers of Yahweh of Israel. We are lovers of the one true God. This is our foundation for love of neighbor, which means we cannot forget the Lord our God as we express our love for neighbor. We cannot cast off his design. We cannot disregard his law or redefine his standard. We cannot celebrate what breaks his heart. And so, no, we are not allowed to compromise biblical sexuality and ethics to fit within the newest, latest cultural paradigm of the day and call it love for neighbor. That is not love. That is not love for our God. And that is not love for neighbor. And if you say to me, my goodness, well, then how do you do it? I would say we should throw a conference on it. And come, let's try to figure it out together. But here's my application. Whichever of those two made you uncomfortable is where you need to grow in neighbor love. 
chances are one of those had you amening and one of those had you squirming. The one that made you squirm is where God is calling you to grow. Forget the amen. Focus on where you were squirming. Why a conference on this? Because I think we all agree that we don't know what we're doing and we need help. It's very ironic. I was finishing the sermon on a plane last night. Is Kaylee here? My friend Kaylee, she goes here, but she's not here tonight. Not you, it's a different, a different one. <laughs> Kaylee was sitting next to me at the plane. We were sitting there, I was typing, she goes, I go to your church. I don't know, um, she's not here. But anyway, we were talking to the flight attendant. While I'm finishing this, and the flight attendant, what a wonderful guy, he starts talking my ear off, and he says, oh, I'm from, I'm from, uh, I'm from, uh, I'm from Eastern Kentucky. Well, how about that? What do you do? I'm a pastor. Tell me about your experience in, with Eastern Kentucky Christianity. And uh-oh, it got really interesting. And he says, you know, I'm gay. And, you know, when it came out that I was gay, I, I, I was done. They were done with me. And I'm sympathizing with the story and trying to be empathetic and love him and talk about what Christianity looks like. But I've got to do this balance of, okay, but I have this sexual ethic. And I just, I, I, and I was literally at this point in my sermon saying, man, we need help. I need help knowing how to do this. And so we are bringing in um, Russ Whitfield to town, who, in my opinion, is, is, is one of the um, best leaders in how to do this in our generation. Um, he's going to take us on a journey through the, through the story of Jonah, a prophet who, who, who was terrible at neighbor love, who hated his neighbor and refused to love his neighbor. Really bad at it. And God kind of had to intervene in a pretty dramatic way. And so we're going to look at Jonah, who struggled just like you and me, and we're going to spend a week together in discipleship around the issue. I would love for you to join us. It is not too late to sign up. Please sign up. If you need help financially, we'll talk about this, but please join us this week. But for now, uh, I need to close here. Let me, let me close the sermon and begin the conference with an all-important motivation. Can we just admit the reason why this is so hard is because it's a lot easier to not love our neighbor. It's a lot easier to give in to the impulse we've had since birth to love ourselves at the cost of our neighbor. This is what's easy for us. And so we need motivation here. We need something to grab us and, and compel us into neighbor love. Because this is not what we do well. I, I spent a few days, just got back from D.C. this week, and do you know what D.C. felt like? One big grown-up nursery. Just fighting over ideology and power and leg legislation instead of plastic toys. Hating neighbor, demonizing neighbor, slandering neighbor, plotting, scheming against neighbor. No love for neighbor. It's, it's absent in that town. Even the National Prayer Breakfast, perhaps the one final bipartisan event where for a brief moment we at least pretend to love each other. But pretend is the operative word. One speaker at the breakfast got up and said, you know, I got to be honest, this kind of feels like the wedding of a dysfunctional family. Like we all got to come together and pretend like we're smiling here and stuff. But we all know when we leave this room, we're going back to our divisions, right? He's being very honest. But then um, Bishop... Michael Curry, 
uh, you will know him. He's the one who gave that uh, homily at the royal wedding. That was just like, whoa, where'd that come from? Bishop Michael Curry stepped to the podium. He's got uh, a few feet away is President Trump and uh, Speaker Pelosi, who get along great. And, uh, <laughs> and he's standing in between them. And, and he said to the most powerful people in the world, he said, allow me to read to you the words of 1 Corinthians 13. That's all I want to do. A passage often, he said, a passage often read at weddings and has nothing to do with weddings. He said, Paul wrote this passage because the community that he loved was full of division and strife. And he said, Paul wrote this to show them a better way. And he said, and I want to show you that better way. And then Bishop Curry with his captivating black gospel voice and cadence, uh, which I'm not going to try to, to reproduce. Um, but Russ will. That's, that's another benefit. We'll actually get some good preaching here um, this week. Um, with that just gospel cadence, read the letter, read to the leaders of the world, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Love is patient. Love is kind. And you could just see everybody in the room um, paralyzed by the word of God being read. And then he said that the way of love that Paul speaks of, he said to everyone, he learned that from Jesus, who himself chose a better way, the way of love. Neighbor love is hard, and nobody knows that more than Jesus Christ. The one commanding is also the one demonstrating. He is the perfect neighbor, the neighbor who loved us even unto death. We obnoxious, evil, sinful neighbors, he loved for God and love for neighbor find their fullest expression. What do I mean? Well, why must he bleed? Because he loves God. He loves God's law. He loves God's justice. He loves God's righteousness. He loves God's holiness. And he will not just cast those aside in the name of love for sinners. Just disregard his God to love sinners. No, no, no. He bleeds. He must bleed because he loves God. And yet, why does he choose to bleed? Because he loves us. He is willing to satisfy the law of God's demands, endure the cost of God's justice, God's righteousness, God's holiness, yes, God's vengeance on behalf of sinners who do not deserve his love. Brothers and sisters, the one calling you to love loved you first. Before he demands you love your neighbor, you are the neighbor that he chose to love. Now, don't you love him? You know, I said that rapid run and I got a yes. You all are slipping. I thought you were the ones who were supposed to talk. <laughs> There's a little kid at the front row and I said, don't you love Jesus? And he goes, yes! <laughs> don't you love him? Thank you. If so, if so, he would say thank you. Now go love your neighbor. Let me pray. Lord, as we come now to the table of your love, the expression of your love, fill us, fill us with your love that we might learn to love our neighbors. We don't know what we're doing. <laughs> we stumble, we fail, we mess up, we, we make fools of ourselves, we don't have the answers, we get things wrong. But Lord, we want 
to love our neighbors because we love you. So fill us now with the assurance of your love that it might overflow into love of neighbor. Through Christ we pray. Amen.